And in Persian-speaking parts of the world and in families who trace their lineage back to ancient Persia or modern-day Iran, the 13th century Islamic mystic Rumi has been one of the most widely read poets for centuries. Now, in the English-speaking world, we're kind of late to the game, but we've finally started catching up on the phenomenon that is Rumi. Indeed, translations of Rumi by Coleman Barks have been the best-selling poetry of any kind in North America for at least two decades or so. Among the most popular of Barks's Rumi translation is Out Beyond Ideas, and I'll um, share my screen with you briefly. So for those of you who logged in early may have heard um, David Wilcox and Nance Pettit singing. Uh, uh, first, you heard Nance doing the Farsi intro, the original about the poem Out Beyond Ideas, and then they sang it. So this is the album, if any of you are interested. This album includes a number of uh, Rumi songs set to poetry, as well as a number of mystics from many different of the world's um, religions, and is titled Out Beyond Ideas. So this poem, um, I want to read it to you, um, Out Beyond Ideas of Wrongdoing and Rightdoing, There is a Field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. I love the way that Rumi gently invites us to let go of limiting concepts in our human language and cultural conventions. Rumi beckons us, meet me in a field that sounds a lot like our UU seventh principle that Nicole and Asher mentioned earlier, the interdependent web of all existence, where we can realize that in a certain sense, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. I love this poem, Out Beyond Ideas. I love um, Coleman Barks's translation, but I should also acknowledge here at the top that Barks does not know Persian. Instead of translating Rumi from the original version, a lot of the original Rumi is both rhymed and metered, Barks begins with literal translations of Rumi into English, uh, most of which were done in the 19th century, and then paraphrases them into contemporary free verse. Now, the results are often powerful and remain connected to the original text, but Barks does also frequently strip out references to Islam that are woven throughout the original. To give you just one example from the poem we just heard, a more literal rendering of Rumi would be that out beyond ideas of religion and infidelity. In many ways, Barks's substitution about beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, that retains the ethical spirit of the text, but it elides the religious content of the original. And if you're curious to explore translations of Rumi that hew closer to his Muslim identity, I recommend the Rumi collection translated by Kabir Helmaninsky. Along these lines, I should perhaps mention that the fairly minor issue of Barks's translations should not be confused with the much more egregious issues some of you may be familiar with. Um, Daniel Ladinsky's alleged translations of Hafez, another famous Persian poet who lived about a century after Rumi. 
In the words of one critic, Lindinsky claims that Hafez appeared to him in a dream and handed him the English translations that he is publishing. Now, it's not my place, he says, to argue with people in their dreams, but I'm pretty certain that is not how translation works. I do like Lindinsky's poetry, this critic says. They do contain mystical insights. They're just not Hafez. They're Hafez-ish, Hafez-esque. But so many of us wish that Lindinsky had just published the poems under his own name rather than appropriating Hafez's name. Now, I'll have to schedule a future sermon about Hafez, but I wanted to bring in Lindinsky as a reference point that on the scale of problematic translations, Lindinsky's appropriation of Hafez is vastly more troubling than Barks's arguably quite authentic paraphrases of Rumi, that we should be uh, very clear that they're paraphrases. Speaking of dreams, though, I want to briefly share the story of how Coleman Barks came to popularize Rumi for the English-speaking world in really an um, explosively popular way. Sometime in the 1970s, the poet Robert Bly, that many of you will know, got really involved with the men's movement. Uh, Barks handed a copy of Rumi's poetry um, to Barks that had been translated by A.J. Arbery. It turned out that Arbery was a very gifted scholar of Arabic, of Persian, of Islam, but not as gifted a poet. But Bly sensed that there is something here in these Rumi poems, and he said to his fellow poet Barks that these poems by Rumi, they need to be released from their cages. And what he meant by that is that these English translations to date had been too wooden too literal, and that rendering them in contemporary free verse might actually help English readers get closer to the mystical heartbeat of Rumi's original writings. Interestingly, not long after that encounter, Barks himself had a dream. He was sleeping on a cliff near a river, and a stranger appeared to him in a circle of light and said, I love you. Barks had not seen this man before, but then he met him in person for the first time the following year at a Sufi Islamic mystical order near Philadelphia. The man was the order's leader. And although Barks does not speak Persian, it is significant that he has had both his own mystical connections to Sufism as well as direct relationships with modern-day Sufis, as uh, Rumi was an ancient Sufi. Now, having given you some background on the modern translations of Rumi, let me tell you just a little bit more about the poet himself. Jalaluddin Muhammad Rumi was born a little more than 800 years ago in 1207 in what is now present-day Afghanistan. Since this given name of Muhammad was so popular, his father gave him the nickname Jalaluddin, which means splendor of the faith. And as he gained prominence as a spiritual teacher, he was often called Malana, which means master or teacher. And although Rumi is the name by which he's almost universally known today, few, if anyone, actually called him Rumi during his lifetime, sort of ironically. Rumi actually refers to a region in Turkey where he lived most of his adult life. Rumi was born into this long line of jurists and religious scholars, and when his father died, Rumi, at the young age of 24, took over his father's teaching and preaching. And for almost a decade and a half, his career continued to grow and um, as expected. It, but then everything changed for him in the year 1244. 
Rumi was 37 years old, and Jen mentioned this earlier. He was 37 years old when he met the wandering mystic Shams of Tabriz, and they had this instantaneous connection, and they lived together in seclusion for almost the next three months. They were just obsessed with each other and with um, sharing mystical experiences and insights. And although there's no record of a physical component of their relationship, there was undeniably a deep spiritual connection. Here's a poem Rumi wrote um, years later that speaks to the impact that Shams had on him and also in turn speaks to the impact that Rumi has had on so many readers of his poetry. The Sufi opens his hands to the universe and gives away each instant for free. Unlike someone who begs on the street for money to survive, a Sufi begs to give you his life. Shams opened Rumi up from being an excellent but fairly standard religious teacher to becoming a beloved mystic, uh, as he is known today. Shams challenged Rumi, get outside the walls of Islam and of what you know. Go visit the local Jewish neighborhood. Buy wine, even though alcohol is forbidden. You don't have to drink it, but just you know, be willing to be seen around it. He had Rumi come to speak with women in a tavern frequented by Armenian Christians. Shams introduced Rumi to music, to sung poetry, to whirling dance. For those of you familiar with the Christian tradition, these transgressive acts subverting purity codes, they sound a lot like similar acts by Jesus of Nazareth, who is known to be unafraid to associate with tax collectors and prostitutes. After three years, however, Shams disappeared one night, never to return. Some suspect foul play by disciples of Rumi who were jealous of Shams' influence, but there's just no way to know for sure. But regardless, this paradigm shift within Rumi was permanent. Before he met Shams, he was about solidity and certitude and knowledge. After Shams, confusion and uncertainty and the turmoil of love gave him direction. As, Loom, as Rumi later wrote, the intellectual runs away, afraid of drowning, but the mystic knows that the whole business of love is to drown in the sea. Rumi lived almost three decades after the sudden disappearance of Shams, and during that time, he wrote more than 35,000 verses, the largest connection, collection of mystical lyrics in the widest variety of metrical patterns ever used by a single Persian poet. And in so doing, he experienced himself to be channeling Shams. Indeed, he titled his three major poetry collections, not the collected poetry of Rumi, of course not Rumi, because no one knew him by that at the time, but he titled them the collected Shams of Tabriz, the complete Shams of Tabriz, and the Shams of Tabriz Ghazals. When Rumi died at the age of 67, his universal mystical appeal was already clear, and the interfaith relationships that Shams had inspired him to um, seed had already borne fruit. At the time of Rumi's funeral, there was an unexpected appearance. They thought it would just be his, you know, his followers, but there was this unexpected uh, appearance of religious leaders from all the other faiths practiced in town, as well as their faithful. 
It turned out that Rumi had been spending more time in the Greek Orthodox, the uh, Armenian Christian, and the Jewish districts than was realized teaching and conversing. They said, whatever we read in our sacred books about the prophets, we beheld that in him, in Rumi. A Greek priest said, he was like bread. Have you ever seen a hungry person run away from bread? I love that image of Rumi as bread. It makes me think that for some of the folks he encountered, they didn't even know they were spiritually hungry until they met him. And then they found themselves thinking, whatever he has, I want more of that. Along those lines, I want to leave you with five quick snippets of Rumi, inspired by the writer Melody Moezi's um, book, The Rumi Prescription. As an Iranian-American living with bipolar disorder, Moezi writes movingly about how short quotes from Rumi have been life-saving for her at various points. They've been like rocks that she could grab onto when the flood waters of adversity threaten to sweep her away. And as we each seek to navigate our way through the physical distancing requirements of a pandemic, some life rafts from Rumi might well be in order. If this sermon, sermon leaves you curious to learn more, I encourage you to get a copy of The Essential Rumi by Coleman Barks. That's a good place to start and, and read more. See what stands out to you from Rumi. But in the meantime, I offer you these five short verses, if they might be of use to you in the coming days and weeks. Notice in particular, does one or two of these short phrases stand out to you in particular, resonate with you during this season of your life? If so, maybe write it down where you can revisit it in the coming days. I'll share my screen with you so that you can see them as I share them with you. The first is quit keeping score if you want to be free. Love has ejected the referee. You can see that rhyme and meter in a more literal translation of Rumi. Do you find yourself sometimes keeping score, whether competing with a friend, a family member, or a colleague, the proverbial keeping up with the Joneses? Or maybe it's for you keeping a list of grievances. While I don't think the takeaway here is that we should make ourselves a doormat for repeated abuse, I do think Rumi is inviting us to consider that sometimes keeping score is toxic. If you ever found yourself reaching for that list in your pocket during an argument to bring out that list, you've been just, you know, ready, you've been keeping score. Is there a relationship in your life that you feel led to let go of keeping score and to lean into love? Quit keeping score if you want to be free. Love has ejected the referee. Second, remember that poem, The Guest House, that Jen shared with us this morning and has shared with us previously. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival. Sometimes what's checking in to our heart and mind is a joy. Sometimes a depression. Sometimes a meanness. Rumi says, welcome and entertain them all. Importantly, I don't think this act of internal hospitality means that these emotional guests need to stay forever. Rather, Rumi is cautioning us against repression. As the saying goes, what we resist persists, but what we can feel 
we can heal? What emotion is knocking on your door that you need to maybe open further to knowing that sometimes the only way out is through? Third, quit being a drop. Make yourself an ocean. This quote reminds me of a line from Leonard Cohen when he sings, if you don't become the ocean, you'll be seasick every day. And this image connects us also with that first poem uh, we read, inviting us to lay down in that field that is out beyond ideas of concepts and language. If this pandemic has reminded us of anything, it is how interdependent we truly are. In the coming days, how might it help you to remember that you are not alone, you are part of a vast interdependent web. Quit being a drop. Make yourself an ocean. Fourth, Open your hands if you want to be held. Sit down in this circle. As I've said at the beginning of each of these Zoom Sunday services, during this time of physical distancing, social connection and social solidarity remain as important as ever. If you are feeling isolated, what might you feel led to do or join in the coming weeks to make more connections? Open your hands if you want to be held. Sit down in this circle. Fifth and finally, why seek pilgrimage at some distant shore when the beloved is right next door? Sometimes we find ourselves in a toxic situation, and in that case, the grass may truly be greener elsewhere. Other times, I hear Rumi inviting us to not forget that sometimes salvation can be found by sinking deeper into the life we already have. What is already present in your life that regularly makes you feel grateful, energized, more fully alive? How might you savor and appreciate that even more than you already do? Why seek pilgrimage at some distant shore when the beloved is right next door? So in that spirit of savoring the aspects of the life that we already have here, I am so grateful during this time to remain connected to each of you. And since we have been considering the mystical insights of Rumi, I selected for our responsive hymn, mystical writing from our own UU tradition, from our 19th century forebear, the UU minister Theodore Parker. I think they are lyrics that Rumi would agree with. So as we continue to reflect on which of these insights from Rumi most resonate with me for today, let's sing together, Be Ours a Religion. 